0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. On December 1st, 1873, a man in Chicago received a telegram from Cardiff, Wales. It was very brief. Saved alone, what shall I do? Telegram came from his wife, a young woman named Anna, nine days earlier en route to Paris with their four children. Their ship had gone down. Anna was found floating on a spar, unconscious at sea. When she finally made it, uh, was rescued and made it to Cardiff, she sent the telegram. Saved alone, what shall I do? Four little girls, lost at sea. Annie, Margaret Lee, Bessie, and the two-year-old Tanetta. Why? Horatio Spofford was the man in Chicago at the time. He was a lawyer, a Presbyterian, an abolitionist, a friend of D.L. Moody's. But for some unknown reason, in 1870, everything in his world started to say to Horatio, No. In 1870, Anna and Horatio's only son died tragically of pneumonia. In 1871, Horatio Spafford lost nearly all of his wealth. He was heavily invested in real estate through the great fire of Chicago. And then in 1873, he lost his remaining children in a shipwreck. If you have heard of Horatio Spafford, you may know this story, and you may know this story because of what happened as Horatio was on his way back uh, to the United Kingdom in order to join his wife, Anna. As he traveled across the Atlantic, the captain of the ship Spafford was on called him to his own cabin. He had heard of his loss And the captain told Horatio that just now they were passing over the very place where his four daughters lost their lives. And as Horatio Spafford passed over the watery grave of his beloved children, he sat down and he penned one of the church's great hymns, It Is Well With My Soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my law, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. In that moment, Horatio Spafford proved to be a man who lived by faith, real faith. What is real faith? It seems so foreign, so strange, so hard to come by. What is it? This question matters for us. Not because all of us will face the same kind of crisis that Horatio Horatio Spafford faced. But because all of us, all of us have a no in our lives. That keeps us from living fully alive. And faith, real faith is the essential disposition of someone who is alive in Christ. Someone who shares hope in Jesus Christ. And so Paul, in his great argument, in his letter to the Galatians, argues forcefully, I think, for a life in faith. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And as he makes this grand argument, he turns to a particular figure in history, a figure in biblical history, who illustrates to him the nature, the true nature of real faith, and that is Abraham. So as he moves into Galatians chapter 3 and 4, he's going to be talking about Abraham. Why Abraham? Well, Abraham is famous, is he not, for his faith. He stars in the Faith Hall of of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11. He gets more coverage there than anybody else. And at the heart of his faith journey is this wonderful story, haunting story, about Abraham the father and Isaac his son. And so I want to reflect with you on that story here this morning. It's called The Binding of Isaac, or the Akedah as it's known in Hebrew. Would you open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19? If you didn't bring your own Bible, grab that black book in the rack in front of you. That's the pew Bible there. And you can open that up to page uh, 977, please. There you'll find Hebrews chapter 11. This is what I call the faith hall of fame. Uh, We're going to read together verses 17 through 19. This is the Hebrews uh, take on The writer of Hebrews uh, take on this story of the Akeda, the binding of Isaac. If you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read these three verses aloud together. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading his holy word. By faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac He who had received the promises was ready to offer up his only son, of whom he had been told, It is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. He considered the fact that God is able even to raise someone from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. In the Genesis account, the original telling of the binding of Isaac, uh, which we find in Genesis chapter 22, and you may find it useful, by the way, to uh, refer to Genesis chapter 22. uh, The story begins in verse 1 with this. After these things, God tested Abraham. The word to test means to try or to prove. And what is it that God needed proved in Abraham? I think it was the strength of his faith. But it's not that God didn't know himself the strength of Abraham's faith. God knows all things. God didn't have anything he needed to prove for himself. What he needed to prove was for Abraham. He needed to prove for Abraham the strength of his faith. So we read after these things, God tested Abraham. I'd like to look at the strength of Abraham's faith, this real faith, in three acts as I read the story together. together uh, sorry, as I read the story for you, and then make some comments. Uh, the three acts. First of all, Act One: the binding of Abraham. This is verses one through four. Listen as I read this. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. I call this the binding of Abraham because I think that it's really Abraham who's in a bind. This is really a dreadful command. This is a horrifying uh, command, even to think about it. And here Abraham is immediately caught between his love for God and his love for his only son. Do you see that he's, he's trapped in an, in, in an impossible tension? There's no way Abraham can resolve this. He would either violate uh, uh, his love for God or violate his love for his son. It's just, it's just riddled with violations here. And in fact, the Hebrew reader in the Mosaic era would certainly understand that child sacrifice is an absolute violation of God's law. It's very clear it's murder. Now, on the other hand, any parent knows the bond that a parent has with a child, and to, to violate that would be unthinkable. And so here, Abraham is in a bind. He's got this impossible tension. And so I asked myself, why? Why would God put his servant in such a bind? Well, my answer is this, that he wants him to experience real faith. And here's my first point. Real faith steps into tension. Real faith steps into tension. That's the case with Horatio, is it not? And this awful, unresolvable tension between the telegram and the hymn. Between saved alone and it is well with my soul. I can't resolve it. But Horatio somehow can step into that tension to hold those extremes together in his soul. The world will tell you that faith actually relieves tension. That it kind of simplifies things. That it clarifies things. That it takes ambiguity away. Uh, That that if you're a person of faith, then things must be simple to you. They they must be clear and easy to you. Uh, Life must feel very black and white. But no. Here we see in this model of faith that real faith steps into tension. And by the way, that's been my experience as well. I want to share with you one of the greatest tensions, one of the most painful tensions that I experience almost every single week. And here it is. On the one hand, preaching. On the other hand, writer's block. I don't, I don't know if you experience this way. I, it feels unique to me. I have the worst time writing sermons. Uh, I, I get writer's block in the middle of the week that is so... Palpable, so miserable that I get physiological responses. And I try to hide it from you when I meet with you. I try to hide it from the staff. But honestly, it, I, I feel racked with pain every single week. Just a few people know it. And I thank you for those of you who are praying for me in the midst of it. See, that's, that's writer's block. On the other hand, I can tell you truly I feel called to preach. And when I preach, I have a sense of God's pleasure and God's joy inside of me. And uh, somehow, through the foolishness of my sermons, I have actually seen God changing people's lives. And I don't know how to hold these two things together. And believe me, I don't want to hold these two things together every week. It's a hard thing. There's that tension on the one hand, but on the other. I know it's not just my experience. I know that many of us do. There's a tension, for example, between God's promises and unanswered prayer. Have you experienced that tension? I came across this week an article online by Tara Adelschik. And she writes this article. It's probably the title of the article that arrested me. It says, it was called, The the Year My Dad Died, Jeff's Hair Fell Out, and We Stopped Having Sex. Uh, She said she had begged God in this year. To show himself it was the hardest year of her life she says in the art, article but she got nothing she writes so I'm not mad that God did not keep my dad alive I'm mad that when my dad died I felt none of the comfort God promises the broken hearted even when I pleaded for it there's a tension there what are the tensions in your life Abraham is struggling. The narrator tells it to us so brilliantly. Many commentators have pointed out that in verse 3, the order of things is all backwards. He's bumbling around the camp after he gets this strange command from God. When he's traveling, he sees from a distance, we read in verse 4, this great mountain. It's looming large. It's casting its deadly, impossible shadow over everything that Abraham can see. Real faith steps into tension. Act two. I call this one seeing the impossible. And the narrative moves on at verse five. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship. And then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, The fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God Himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. You hear the loneliness of that refrain. The two of them walked on together. They're thinking, they're thinking, what is this? We're not told what either of them is thinking, but the dialogue begins to uncover the tragic tension with which they both seem to be now living. And there's something that happens to the reader as we read along. Because though we can't see into the mind of Abraham, it seems he's starting to think differently about this than we're thinking. He's starting to see something that we're not seeing. And we hear it in the dialogue. In verse 5, do you catch this? He says to these two young men, about the same age as Isaac, probably adolescents, you stay here. Uh, We're going to go and worship and then... We will come back to you. Come again? Who's we? You surely don't mean me, Abraham, and Isaac will come back to you after having worship? Well, commentators, Gordon Wenham, for example, has wondered, is Abraham looking for a way out? Is he contemplating, for example, doing this but not telling the others? Maybe he's lying. Maybe he doesn't want them to intervene on behalf of Isaac, so he's lying. Or maybe he actually thinks he will come back with Isaac, and he's thinking about disobedience. We're going to go up the mountain, we're going to take the knife and the fire, we'll do a few motions, and then I'll bring Isaac back down. We don't know. It's possible that Abraham doesn't know. It's possible that he's so confused at this point that he is entertaining all kinds of doubts and misgivings and temptations to disobey. These are all part of the disposition of somebody who lives with real faith. All of these things held together at the same time. We can't resolve them. We can't make sense of them. But they're all there. It's hard to live with tension. You psychiatrists call it cognitive dissonance. There are three responses, by the way, uh, to cognitive dissonance. We can flee it. We can fight it. Or we can forget it. We can try to anyways. But if we try to flee from tensions in our lives... I'll tell you how that's going to show up. It's going to show up in quitting or in withdrawing. Quitting, I give up. Withdrawing, I'm just going to pull back into myself away from others, or conformity, just go with the flow. That's fleeing. Or we can try to fight it. We could try to resist the temptation, the tension. We could try to break it down and we would then uh, it would show up in our lives in terms of rebellion or black and white thinking or even judgmentalism. We try to reduce tension in other people's lives. We might flee it. We might fight it. We might try to forget it. We might try to lapse into apathy and just go, whatever, I don't know. Or denial and pretend it doesn't exist. Ultimately, we might lapse into bitterness. Just angry. But we read in verse 8 now, more dialogue. The reader's interest is piqued. Because it seems that Abraham is beginning to resolve. He's beginning to see some clarity in what he's looking at when he says, God himself will provide the lamb. Now, this is very different. I don't think he's thinking about disobeying anymore. I don't think he's actually lying to these youths anymore. He just sees something that we can't see. He sees hope. I mean, Isaac asks this question that sends my anxiety as the reader through the roof. Dad, There's the fire. There's the knife. Where's the lamb? And he says, my son, God himself will provide. Now, a little Hebrew lesson. It's very important to notice here um, that the word translated provide in the Hebrew is literally the simple word for sight. God himself will see. That's interesting, isn't it? You have to look at some other translations to find that. The Jewish Publication Society translation says God himself will see to it. And that he was closer to the original. God himself will see to it. A lamb will be provided. And here we come to my second point. That is, real faith holds the problem in tension with God's promise. See, this is, on the one hand, I've got this problem. But on the other hand, God's got this promise. And I'm going to hold those two seemingly irreconcilable truths Together. My problem and God's promise. See, God had made a promise to Abraham that he would have a son, a blessed son, through whom all the nations of the earth would one day be blessed. He didn't understand this. He didn't see how it could possibly ever happen in his life. But he knew somehow because God had promised, God would make a way. And over many years, over a hundred years, Abraham, this old man, had learned somehow to trust this God's promises. When God met him as a wanderer, he promised him a home. When God met him as an old man without a child, he promised him a child. When God met him in the midst of family strife, his family being torn apart, God uh, promised him that he'd be a blessed father. What about you? It's not just about your problem, but it's about his promise. Thursday morning, which is late in my preaching cycle, I got up, and I didn't have a sermon. I had a blank screen and no ideas, and I was so anxious. I got up. I started to do my devotions, and one of the first things I read in the morning right now is Jesus Calling, Sarah Young's little book. It's a little reflections. The voice of Jesus speaking to you. You want to know what the first sentence was on October 17th? Uh, What was the first sentence? See, Danny, it's okay. Okay. anxiety is a result of envisioning the future without me oh my gosh I gotta stop right there that was all I needed to hear on Thursday anxiety is the result of envisioning the future without me see God's promised you so much and when you think about tomorrow without the benefit of those promises you can't hold the tensions together you can't have hope all you've got is on the one hand and you've got nothing on the other hand. Jesus doesn't want us to live this way. He wants us to have real faith that holds the problem in tension with the promise. This week, uh, I called a friend at work. I was on the Burke Gilman calling and he answered the phone at work and, and he, uh, he was very emotional. People get this way when I call Sometimes. <laughs> and I could tell he'd been crying this says a guy I mean you pull yourself together and he apologized he said I'm sorry I just got off the phone I said what's going on he said well I'm here at work and I took this phone call from one of our customers and um, as we were talking I could tell she had had a strained something wrong in her past and uh, she made an allusion to it and I asked her about it and I said would you mind if I prayed for you and I think, well that takes guts He took the risk. He said, could I pray for you? And she said, I would really like that. And she then poured out her story of the last year. Turns out her husband had been cheating on her, been having an affair. And when she asked her husband to stop, he refused to stop. She had to move out of the house. And then her husband committed suicide, took his life. She had to sell the house. And here she is without her family, without her home. Yes, please pray for me. And as those two shared together and prayed together over the phone, they were both basket cases. And you know why? Not just because her life was so hard, but because God was present. And they both knew it in that moment. That's his promise. What does it mean to test Abraham's faith? It means to show him how strong it is. And let me just tell you, you might not think you you have a, a lot of faith, but the measure of your faith it is not its quantity it's its object faith is never measured by its quantity but by its object everybody has faith the question is what do you put your faith in who do you put your faith in i love what uh, Karl carl bart says when he says what interests me is not myself with my faith but he in whom i believe it's about jesus and his faithfulness and if he's faithful then your faith is powerful James Denny writes, The spiritual attitude of a person who is conscious that in themselves they have no strength and no hope of a future, and who nevertheless cast themselves upon and live by the word of God, which assures them of a future, is the necessary and eternal right attitude of all souls to God. That's real faith. Abraham is holding his problem in tension with God's promise. But is there any resolution? The story continues. Act 3. God provides himself. Let's pick it up in verse 9. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But... But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. The angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So, Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, Abraham sees the strength of his faith. He carries it to the very end where he could see no end. And with urgency, and I believe joy, the angel of the Lord cries out, Abraham, Abraham, do you see? And he does, he sees. And what does he see? He sees a ram. By the way, here's where the little Hebrew lesson pays off. If you look at verse 14, it ends with this. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Follow that footnote down to the bottom. Footnote C, says, he shall be seen. See, the word for provided here is the word seen. And at the end, we're told this mountain is the mountain where the Lord shall be seen. Now faith has become sight. And what does it look like? It looks like a ram. Now the Jewish reader would immediately understand the significance of this because as biblical history unfolds later texts will tell us that this Mount Moriah this altar is actually the location of Jerusalem a thousand years later David would take this mountain from the Jebusites they would build an altar on this altar and day and night morning and evening the a sheep would be slaughtered on this place for atonement for forgiveness it's at this point that a, a holy God can be held in tension with a God's love for all people. And the Christian understands that all of this points forward to Jesus, Jesus Christ, the one whom the John the Baptist identifies when he says, "Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world just in time." Look, there's the Lamb, Jesus Christ, the one and only Son. The one who is called to bless all nations. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, Jesus is the one who resolves the tension. Doesn't he? This is the way he lived. Jesus was clean, but he would touch the unclean. Jesus was holy, but he would sit with sinners Jesus obeyed the law and yet he would not stone its violators. The cross itself is the ultimate place where God's love for all people and our brokenness are joined together and resolved. Only here. What is real faith? Finally, number three, real faith is living with a yes in Jesus when everything in you says no. What are the tensions in your life? Who or what is saying no to you? Will you place your faith in Jesus? When people in Jesus' day say, What do we have to do to work the works of God? What does it mean to be fully alive? Jesus says, This is the one thing. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Have faith in me. Let me be your yes to all the world's no's. Your life may look the same, you may be living with the same tensions. I tell you what, but you can know if you put faith in Jesus Christ this morning, that you're forgiven, that you have eternal life, that the spirit of Jesus Christ lives within you, that Jesus is the way when there is no way and that God will take the brokenness and he'll work good in and through you. Well, I got to go, but I I tell you, I I will never sing it is well with my soul without thinking about another grieving father. Years ago, I was a young chaplain, Cambridge, Massachusetts at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And I got a phone call, the kind of call you never want to get. It was about one of our students named Josiah. Josiah had gone skiing with some friends up in Burlington, Vermont. And unfortunately, the card hit a patch of black ice and crossed the media and hit an oncoming car. And he was gravely ill. I drove up to Burlington, Vermont, to the hospital. I went into the hospital room with his father. He was unconscious on the bed. They were waiting for the swelling to happen and then subside, not knowing if he would ever live, let alone be himself again. And I sat with that father over his son, and we prayed together, and then we sang. And you know what we sang? When peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll. And I looked into that father's eyes and I saw two things I at the time did not understand. The first was I saw a depth of pain I knew I could never understand. Uh, Potentially losing your son. But there was more to that pain, unanswered questions, because this man happened to be a faithful man. Uh, He was a missionary. He lived in Venezuela. He'd raised his family there. And now he had to come back for this. But the other thing I saw in his eyes was real faith. I saw a man who, in the midst of this pain, had real peace, true peace. It is well with my soul it is well close with this quote from a famous physicist who once said when you get to the end of all the light you know and it's time to step into the darkness of the unknown faith is knowing that one of two things shall happen either you will be given something solid to stand on or you'll be taught how to fly Lord, we trust in you. Many of us have been trusting in you for years, if not decades. And again, we trust in you. Some of us here today have never trusted in you. And this is a moment for us to open our hearts and minds and say, Jesus, I believe. If that's your prayer this morning, you need to know that you are fully alive in Christ. And it's time for all of us to live with the assurance of things unseen, to live with faith. God, thank you for giving your Holy Spirit to make us able to do what we could never do alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.